0: Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit FairOaks.org. Well, good morning everybody. How are we doing? Good. Uh, Hey, I spent the last couple of days with Pastor Phil at uh, the biannual Converge uh, meeting. Now, if you're new here, if you don't know what Converge is, this is a network of churches that we've partnered together with to reach more people for Jesus. And so um, I come back really encouraged. Uh, God's doing a cool thing in our region. Uh, And so I'm really pumped on that. I'm also really pumped just because um, being there, um, I realized what a diverse network of churches we belong to. Um, There were Uh, songs sung in multiple languages this weekend. Um, People, get this, this is going to blow your mind, people clap during the worship, like I don't just mean at the end, like on the the one and the three or the two and the four. I probably butchered that, Phil. Phil could tell you where. But they were clapping. Uh, and then uh, when when something was sending the message that really stirred the hearts of the people, when God was really moving, they did more than just take vigorous notes. Uh, now, uh, if that's not your thing, uh, then you do you. But I, I say that just to say it was very clear to me this weekend that we're going to spend eternity uh, with the diverse group of people that worship in a lot of different ways, and so. Uh, If that is your thing, if if you hear something that resonates with you and you want to say amen, you want to hear more and say, come on, if you want to clap during the worship, I just want to say you be you, you do you, because a church is better when diverse people uh, can be themselves, even if that means saying like a ton of times. Karen's from California, so bring it on, I say. Um, So (laughs) with that said, (laughs) thank you, Bob. With that said, uh, Mark chapter two uh, is where we'll be. And uh, today I have one goal and that is to get you to stop being a religious person. Um, Now, here's what I mean by that, because by those laughs, maybe some of you are thinking, like, isn't Christianity a religion? Um, I talked to a guy this weekend that said that. Um, He asked why I was in Turlock, and I told him, well, you know, we're here, obviously, for the food and to vacation, right? Um, Sorry if you're from Turlock. And I I told him, no, no, we're here for this meeting. He heard that uh, me and Phil, we work at a church, and and, and he said, oh, I I like Jesus. Um, I'm a Hindu, um, but, you know, you have your path. I have mine. We're all going to the same place. Have you ever heard someone say something like that? yes. Um, Essentially the idea is that God or the good life, whatever you want to call it, is at the top of some proverbial mountain. Um, And each religion of the world offers you a way up the mountain. And so my new Hindu friend would have his own path up the mountain. Uh, uh, We've got some Buddhists in our family that they would have their way up the mountain to kind of let go and achieve nirvana. Um, You might have some Muslim friends that they have their path up the mountain that you pray in this way, you fast in this way, and this will get you there. And Some people envision Christianity just as one of many paths up the mountain. Um, and maybe you come in here thinking about Christianity as one of the paths up the mountain. You're like, I don't know where this is going. Well, um, where this is going is what we're going to see in Mark chapter two is Jesus came uh, to free us from that religious mindset of climbing up the mountain. Jesus came um, to blow the whole paradigm up and offer us something brand new. Uh, and that's why, by the way, uh, the greatest opposition to Jesus in the gospel of Mark, um, it doesn't come from the demons. Uh, like I I hope you'll notice this as we journey through Mark together, that um, the demons, they're definitely not on team Jesus, but when Jesus tells them something, they obey, they go. When he says, shut up and get out, they they go. Um, the greatest opposition to Jesus doesn't come from the secular people. Um, it's even like the pagan Roman government. Like when it comes to um, the death of Jesus, the, the government's like, we wash our hands. We don't want to kill this guy. Um, it's not the secular people. It's not the uh, demons. The greatest source of opposition to Jesus in the gospel of Mark comes from religious people. Um, These are the people that think they're climbing their way up the mountain. And when Jesus comes offering something new, um, it infuriates them. And it's why, just spoiler alert, um, they are going uh, to put Jesus on the cross. And and today, what we're going to see in our text is we're going to see what began a little bit last week when Pastor Phil was preaching this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. We're going to see it start to really pick up in our text today. Um, And in these scenes, we're going to see really clearly um, the distinction between Jesus and religion. um, And we're going to see really how Jesus comes to offer us something that these religious leaders uh, could never offer. But I would submit to you, I think each and every one of us is deep down longing for. Are you ready? All right. Mark chapter two, starting in verse 13, says this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Uh, so, so this whole thing starts off with Jesus calling his fifth disciple. Um, and if you were here with us a few weeks ago, when we looked at Jesus calling his first disciples, this reads a lot like that. Jesus is going for a stroll by the Sea of Galilee. He's paying attention to his surroundings and he sees this man and goes, I'm going to change his life. And so he walks up to Levi and he says to follow me. It, it all reads very similar, except there's one detail. Levi is not sitting in a boat. He's sitting in a tax booth. Um, And that... Uh, would have been very significant uh, for Mark's readers because um, at this point in history, um, tax collectors were utterly despised by the Jewish people. Um, I'm not sure it's actually much better these days, um, but it was actually a lot worse back then. Um, You got to put yourself in the shoes of the original readers. Rome was a foreign power occupying the Holy Land. So you have this foreign government occupying the land. They can't worship like they want. They don't have freedom like like they want, And what Rome would do is um, they would take bids from different people that would say, here's how much taxes I think I can raise for your government. And so Rome would listen to these people and they would take the person that would have the highest bid and say to them, okay, you now have the authority of the mightiest army in the history of the world to go and collect those taxes that you said that you can collect to fund our military might, to fund our ambitions. And um You know, the practice, it it was often done that when a tax collector had the authority of Rome, um, there was kind of this like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. If you take something off the top um, beyond what you've promised to deliver to us, like that's just fine. You do you, you have our authority, you go collect taxes. We want money, you want money, we want to oppress people, let's do it together. Um, and so this is what tax collectors were. This is why they were despised by their people is, um, they're taking money and really ripping people off along the way. If, if your tax was this much, they take a little bit more and to feed into their own riches. Um, and, and then the, so this whole job, it would, it would really attract kind of dishonest and shady people people that didn't mind taking more than should have been taken from people. And the worst part about all of this is that Levi was a Jewish man. So it's not only that he's taking your hard-earned money. It's not only that he's taking more than he should have, but he has the authority of the Roman guard down the street, so you can't take no, say no. Um, it's, it's not only that, but it's that he's a Jewish man. So basically, he's working for the oppressor. He is working for the army that is occupying your town. He's working for the enemy. Um, I've preached on tax collectors over the years and I've been like, oh yeah, it'd be like the IRS working for ISIS. Um, I don't know how to say it in such a way that you can feel um, the, the, the way people despise them. But I think in 2021, I got it. It's basically like a politician for the party you don't like. That's how they would think about tax collectors. These people are trying to sell out my country. These people are trying to ruin everything. These people are going to destroy the world. That's how you would look at a tax collector. And here Jesus is eating with him. I I want you to just picture that like the person that you would go, no way. When God comes to earth, there's going to be a long line of people who come to. And there at the end, that's who Jesus goes to. The despised man in the community. Now, what's he doing there? Um, I think what he's doing is he's going to the shadiest, most despised person in that community so that every person with hidden darkness and shame in their life over what is broken in them would see, oh, if he'll be friends with Levi, like, man, maybe I, maybe I could come out of hiding. Maybe I could bring my mess into the light. If he's okay with a tax collector, then surely he'll be okay with my mess. And that's exactly what begins to happen. Look at verse 15. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors, so Levi invited his friends, and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. Um, So you've got all of these tax collectors, Levi apparently invited his friends, uh, and then you have these sinners. Now, when you hear the word sinners, don't think theologically. Um, It it is very true that the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, But that's not what Mark's saying here, because that would just be like saying he was eating with tax collectors and humans. That's not a very useful category. Um, In this culture, sinners was a theological term, but it was also a cultural one. It was a social one. Um, They would use the term sinners to refer to a particular type of sinner um, who sinned in a way that society would shun. Um, Every culture has their taboos of these are the particular sins that we elevate and say that these are gross. You're not welcome in polite society if you struggle with these things. And in this culture, they would use the term sinners to refer to those types of people. And so I, I don't know, like, um, again, I want to encourage us to use our imagination as we're going through this series, as we're thinking about the scene. Just picture um, the types of people in our society um, that you would be nervous if you showed up at church and they were there. Like the kind of people that you would want to hide your kids from, um, that you would want to, I mean, this is just the darkest of the dark in the scene. These are tax collectors and sinners. These are the most despised people in the community, and there Jesus is eating with them. Um, Eating, uh, sharing a meal together, it's, it's not an insignificant thing. It's not saying they were in a restaurant two booths over, and Jesus is eating there with his disciples, and then there's all these sinners and gross people over there. It's saying that Jesus reclined at table with them. Um, that idea of reclining at table, it's not a meal on the go. This is, um, this is something in the first century that's known as table fellowship. It was a way that you invited people into your life. Um, we still do this with meals today. Um, although we have three young kids, so um, I can only like read about this in commentaries right now. Um, but the idea is like sharing a long meal together is a way to welcome someone into your life and say, I want to be your friend. I want you to know me. I want you to get to know my life, come into my world. I want to get to know your world. It's a sign of fellowship. And that's what Jesus is doing with sinners and tax collectors. Um, It's a sign of friendship. So, So God comes to earth in the person of Jesus. And where does he go? He draws near in relationship to the most broken, most dirty, most struggling members of the society. Um, This is why, by the way, Jesus is known as the friend of sinners. This is a term um, that people will, they'll call him that. They'll say, Jesus, he's the friend of sinners. Because the point is, um, usually holy men and teachers wouldn't associate with these people. But Jesus he draws near to them. And and I don't want you to miss this scene here. He not only draws near, but he has a meal with them. Um, Again, imagine what's going on here. Mark is drawing, especially with what we're going to see next, he's drawing a contrast. It's a picture of joy. It's a party. It's a meal. They're reclining at table like the tax collectors because they were shady. They had a lot of money. And so I'm, I'm envisioning there's pretty good food there. I'm envisioning this probably loud, obnoxious music with the type of folk that would come out to this party here. Jesus comes to earth and he is uh, eating with sinners and tax collectors. And it's a picture of joy. It's a picture of delight. What Mark is saying is when the kingdom of God comes to earth, it's like a feast. Um, this is why the Bible will end uh, when God restores the world. Um, there's a feast with God's people. In a restored heavens and earth, God feasts with his people. This is a continual image throughout the bi- uh, throughout the Bible, um, that God has come to throw the best party, uh, to have a feast with the people that he loves. And that's what's going on at Levi's house. It's a picture of joy when God's kingdom comes. Now, it sounds really beautiful. Um, and if these guys can get on, that means you and I can get in on that. This should be good news. But th- The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're not going to like this. Look with me at verse 16. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but it is those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous... But sinners. So the religious leaders, they're confused that Jesus would throw a party with these people. Uh, Because in the mind of the religious leaders, the world is made up of two types of people. You have the good people and the bad people. And the Pharisees, they would have surely considered themselves a part of the good people. Uh, The term Pharisees uh, that describes this group, it literally means the set apart ones. Um, So uh, these were people who believed um, that God had not yet come back to restore the world, that God was allowing this pagan Roman government to occupy the Holy Land because humanity was too messed up. And if we could just clean ourselves up, if we could just follow God's law enough, if we could just be good enough people, then God would come down. He would restore the earth and the good people would get to be with God. The bad people would go to the bad place. And the Pharisees, this was just their belief that there's two types of people in the world and they worked really, really hard to be in the good people category. And they looked down their noses at anyone that they thought did not make the cut. And so this is um, what we see in these religious leaders here. What we see in the life of the Pharisees is really the essence of the religious mindset. Uh, The religious mindset sees the world as there's good people and bad people. And so the essence of the religious mindset says, if I obey... I'll be a good person. If I obey, God will love me. If I do the right thing, good things will happen to me. This is the essence under every world religion. Um, If I obey, then good things will happen to me. If I obey, God will love me. And so they see Jesus hanging out with people who are not obeying and they cry foul. Because Jesus, since Mark chapter one, has been announcing that God's kingdom has come. We saw last week that Jesus is claiming, uh, making claims of deity. They accused him of blasphemy. And so they're trying to figure out this Jesus. They're like, He's proclaiming God's kingdom has come. He's saying things that only God can say. He's claiming to be God. And so in their mind, when God comes, he's going to reward the righteous. He's not going to go hang out with the bad people. And so what Jesus does, it just breaks all of their categories. And they say, hey, hold on just a second. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners when we've cleaned ourselves up? He should be eating with us. He should be seeking people like us. He should want to be with us. And and that right there, I think in their reaction, in their question, what's really just a veiled complaint, um, it it reveals the problem of religion. See, if if you buy into this religious mindset that the world's made up of two kinds of people, good and bad, and it's through your moral performance that you get into the good category, if you buy into that mindset, it will lead to either sweat or swagger. Um, for the religious leaders, it led to swagger, which, which if you're like, what does that word mean? You, you walk in a type of pride like these Pharisees that you think you're better than the people that don't live up to the standards that you have. And so the Pharisees, they walked around going, we're the set apart ones. We're the, the hope for God's people. We're the future. We're awesome. You should all just get in line to be with us. Thank God for us. We're just really great. And uh, what's really interesting about this religious mindset is when you're doing well, you do kind of look down on other people around you. You do look down at other people and say, why do you struggle with that? I don't struggle with that. And what's so ironic about all of this is the Bible says that God hates pride. So religious people, they just totally miss this part of the Bible that says God hates pride. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, religious people are filled with pride, filled with swagger that says, I am better than you. And so when they see somebody partying with someone that was on their bad list, they just have no category for it. Like, come on, they don't deserve this. I deserve this. And so, um, they feel ripped off. They feel really upset. It leads them to get frustrated with Jesus. So if you buy into a mindset, you could have swagger in your life. And just, I'll be honest with you, nobody's going to like you when you're acting like this. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, some of us, if you're buying into a religious mindset, if you're less oriented as a type A rule follower, and you struggle with following the rules, you might not have swagger. You might have sweat. And here's what I mean by that. You constantly feel like you're not measuring up. Has anyone ever been there? where um, you have these standards for yourself, um, and some of them are just self-imposed of, I have to get this grade in order to be okay. Um, I have to work out this many times in order to be okay. Um, I have to be this much in charge to be okay. I have to have this many friends to be okay. See, you can be religious about anything. It could be official teaching of a world religion, but you can be very religious even as a secular person. You could be very religious and say, I have to get into this school If I can't get into that school, then I'm not a worthy person. And so some of you, if you get into that school, you might be filled with swagger. Like, look at me. I've got it going on. All those dum-dums over there, they don't have it going on. Or you could be filled with sweat. Like when I was applying for colleges and I'm like, who is going to let me in? And you can feel like, I'm not good enough. Am I going to measure up? And the way this works in your relationship with God is you're constantly filled with fear. You're constantly feel like, I can't come to him. I've got to maybe clean my life up before I can come to God. And then I can come to him and make some requests once I have some track record of obedience behind me. Um, If you've bought into a religious mindset and you're in this sweat category... Um, You maybe think that God is disappointed in you. You maybe think that um, he's just like sitting up there with a lightning bolt ready to crack you. Um, And though they look very different on the outside, swagger and sweat, I will submit to you both have the same root, a religious mindset that's puffed up with pride. And in the swagger side, you're proud because you're doing great. And in the sweat side, you're proud and you're freaking out because you're not doing good and you think that God's love for you is determined based on your performance. Um, And I think if we could be really honest, most of us aren't all swagger. Most of us aren't all sweat, but we go back and forth, right? So sometimes you have a good day and you're like, I'm doing really good. And maybe it's on Sunday. Maybe you go home and really apply the sermon to your life and you're feeling really good. And then Monday, you totally forget and fly off the handle and be an unreasonable person. And then now you're crushed and you're like, how could God love me? And then Tuesday, his mercies are new every morning. You go to small group that night, you're feeling great again. And you're like, man, thank God for me. I'm doing so good. And then Wednesday comes and it's just the worst day in the week. It's middle of the week. Everyone at the office is crazy and you fly off the handle again and you think, Oh no! Has God given up on me? And you go up and down, back and forth, and there's no real steadiness to your Christian life. There's no real confidence in Christ. It's confidence in yourself. And so, on the days you're doing good, you feel great. On the days that you're not, you feel crushed. And this is the madness of the religious mindset. It is a fragile, fragile way to live, and it never leads to joy. If you're doing well, you're proud, looking down on others. If you're not doing well, you're crushed and condemning yourself. Neither way leads to joy. And so I want, if if you can resonate with that at all, I want you to pay attention to Jesus's response because Jesus's response to this is so life-giving. It is so freeing. It is so loving. What he says is, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. In other words, what he's saying is I have not come to congratulate the good people. I've come to help the bad people. See, Jesus sees the world in in two categories too. There are sinners and there is him. Jesus. Those are the two categories, all of humanity over here, and then Jesus who is righteous. There's all of humanity who is sick with a disease called sin and it's eating away at us on the inside. And there's Jesus, the great physician who is God, come into human history to heal us, to renew us, to make us new. And so what Jesus says is, you've got it all wrong. I've not come to congratulate the righteous, the good people, because there are none who are righteous according to the Bible. There are none who who seek God consistently. We're all inconsistent at best. Jesus has come to call those that know that they are sinful, that know they need rescue, that know that they need a savior, because Jesus has come to be the savior that can do what they could never do for themselves. And there's such freedom in this. What he is saying, what I want us to hear in this is that God knew that you and I wouldn't be able to measure up. Jesus says, I wouldn't have had to come if you could clean yourself up. I would have kicked you down commandments from heaven. It would have been a lot easier for me if that could fix your problem. But the problem's so much deeper than that. Uh, giving down commandments from heaven doesn't fix your problem. In fact, it, it just exposes how evil you are. It exposes how far you fall short of God's design. It exposes how uh, much you and I are prone to that religious mindset of pride and freaking out. And so Jesus says, look, I have come because that whole religious mindset, it was never going to work. I have come not to call the righteous, but to heal the sick. And when you can embrace this, um, that God knew that you weren't going to be able to measure up. And that's exactly why he sent Jesus. That is the place of freedom. Um, This is the idea of grace, and it's really the center of the Christian life. It's that um, God loves us in spite of us. God gives us what we don't deserve. So Jesus comes not to dish out trophies to the good people and to condemn the bad people. Jesus comes to give uh, sinners and broken people things that they don't deserve. This is the idea of grace. It's undeserved love. It's getting something you don't deserve. And it is at the very heart of the Christian life. And um, right now I'm going through a book with some guys in our church that I'm discipling. And um, there's a great summary of the gospel in there that I think would just be a helpful way to think about this text. Um, A pastor named John Miller uh, once said this. He said, the gospel, the good news of God's grace, what Jesus is saying in verse 17 can be summarized up in two statements. Um, Number one, cheer up, you're worse off than you think. So so on those days when you're freaking out and going, "Oh my goodness, has God changed his mind about me? Has he learned new information about me?" It's like, "Cheer up, you're actually far worse than you knew, and that didn't surprise God. He knows everything about you, and so though you might learn new information about your sinfulness, he's not going to learn new information about your sinfulness." So, yeah, you're worse than you think. So, breathe out. But it's good news because cheer up, you're worse than you think, but cheer up because you're more loved than you could ever imagine. Because in full view of our sin and failings and the way that we would fall short of the glory of God, Jesus came into the world as the great physician to heal us, to give us what we don't deserve. This is the essence of the gospel, that God hasn't come uh, to congratulate and clap for the righteous. He has come because there are none who are righteous. There are none who are consistent. And he has come to heal all those that would come to him and say, do for me what I can't do for myself. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of the good news Jesus came preaching. And if you can receive that this morning, uh, you can be like these sinners and tax collectors who flock to Jesus and have a party in his presence because it frees you up. Now the question then becomes, well, then why does God give us any commands? If God comes to bless uh, the sinners, if he uh, loves us in spite of our performance, then why would God give us any commands at all? And that's exactly what the text addresses address is next. Let's let's read this. This will be a bigger chunk here, so follow along with me. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, "Why did John's disciples and the Pharisees f- disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast?" Jesus said to them, "The wedding guests cannot feast while the wedding groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they can't fast, but the time will come when the groom is being taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day." No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new path, patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst in the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wine skins. Then on the Sabbath, he was going along the grain fields and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David and those who are with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathur, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except for the priests. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he told them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they, that's the religious leaders, were watching him closely to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath. And he told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And after looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Okay, so our our conflict is now coming to a head. And let's see how we got there. Um, in the verses we just read, uh, we see the Pharisees question Jesus about two of God's commands, two uh, very important commandments to God's people that would have really been central to the life of God's people. Um, and in Jesus's response to these questions, which are again, really just veiled accusations, Jesus reveals um, that religion and the gospel approach the commands of God in a very different way. Both take the commands of God seriously. We're going to see that in these verses, um, but religious people and Jesus are going to approach the commands of God completely differently. Let's, let's look at these two commands and see the difference. Um, the first thing they question about him, him about is fasting. Now, the purpose of fasting is ultimately um, experiencing physical hunger that creates a spiritual hunger for God. It's a a command, but uh, some have called it a spiritual discipline or a practice that God has given us because we're forgetful people. We forget what matters most. And so God has given us fasting um, to do something to our physical bodies to remind us of ultimate importance, that more than food, we need to commune with God, that he is the bread of life, that knowing him is true life. And so fasting, this is something that God did command his people to do um, once a year on the day of atonement, um, which you might know by uh, the name Yom Kippur. Um, but this was really um, a command that God had given to Israel. They were to do it once a year on Yom Kippur. And then a common tradition was to um, fast while mourning. Um to, to not get lost in your grief, but to remember to bring your grief to God as we talked about when we went through Habakkuk. And that's probably what's going on here because the Pharisees say that John's disciples are fasting. We saw a chapter ago that John had been arrested. And so at this point, he's either sitting in prison um, or has been killed. And so it makes a lot of sense that John's disciples would fast and um, bring their grief to God and remember to lament and to pray. And the Pharisees say, well, why aren't your disciples fasting, Jesus? John's disciples fast. We fast. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And see, the point we need to see here is that religious people see God's commands as a way to get God to do something for us. Um, They say, we're fasting. We're the good people. John's disciples are fasting. They're the good people. Your disciples aren't fasting. What is wrong with them? And Jesus, so religious people, they they really see fasting as a means to an end. Because here's what's crazy. God is in the flesh standing there right in front of them. And the whole point of fasting is to commune with God. And God's standing right there. And they're over there fasting going, we're going to fast really hard to try to commune to be with God. Do you see the insanity? of it. And so they say, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus's response is he compares himself to a wedding groom. And he says, hey, I'm here. Like the whole point of fasting is standing right in front of you. And so there's going to come a day where I'm taken away and my disciples will fast on that day. But for right now, the point of fasting is right here. See, for Jesus, the, the commands of God are not a means of Getting God to do something for us, they're a means of enjoying relationship with the God who loves us. That's what God's commands are always about. It's not God saying, if you can do this, then I'll love you. It's God saying, hey, here's how I design life to be. Here's how you can be with me. Here's how you can line yourself up to enjoy more of my grace in your life. And so religious people, they see the law is a way to put God in their debt. And they feel like they've done a good job fasting and they haven't. Jesus sees the commands of God like fasting is a way to enjoy communion with God. And so when God is in the flesh among them, he's like, fasting just doesn't make sense right now. Um, If I could put it to you this way with another food analogy, it would be like if Karen told me, "Um, hey, I'm going to prepare your favorite dinner tonight. Um, Karen makes a lot of great dishes, but if she were to say like chicken parmesan tonight, I'm not giving suggestions. I'm really not. This is just a illustration. If she were to say that, and I were to say, okay, she said, okay, I'm going to make this for you. It's a long process to make it, so don't eat a big lunch. If I were to fast from lunch and say, okay, I'm going to be really hungry to enjoy this meal that my wife's going to make, because it's so good. Um, that would be like fasting in the Bible. And then when I come home, you have the meal, just like Jesus, the bridegroom is there and you enjoy communion with him. But what the religious leaders are doing, it would be like me going home and Karen puts it in front of me and we sit down for dinner. I'm like, oh, I can't eat. I'm fasting because my wife's making my favorite meal tonight. I can't eat what you put in front of me. Like, do you see the insanity of these guys fasting when God is in the flesh right there? Jesus is like, did you understand the point? Like, where did I miss you? Do I need to go back and teach you about fasting? Like, it's all about communion with me. It's all about deepening your prayer life. And here I am in the flesh. And all you guys want to do is try to impress me with your obedience when all I want to do is have relationship with you. It's madness. This is what religion does though. And and then the second example we get is Sabbath rest. Now, the purpose of the Sabbath is to rest. It's to remember that we're human beings, not human doings. Um, That God is eternal. His resources are limitless, but you and I, we are finite and our resources aren't limitless. So God has given us the Sabbath as a, a reminder in our life. To slow down and remember that we're human and that He's not, and that when we shut down and cease from work, God doesn't cease from work. It's again a really great gift. But what the Pharisees do is um, they they took God's command to Sabbath, what He had told Israel Sabbath for one day. What they did is they took that law and they added a bunch of things to it. They said, "Well, if you're really going to rest, you can't walk." farther than this amount of distance. And you can't go grocery shopping on this day. And they came up with all these rules. This is what religious people love to do. They love to take God's commands and then add a bunch of things to them, man-made rules, and then hold people to their man-made rules and totally neglect God's actual command. And so there they are on the Sabbath. God has said, I want you to rest and be a human being and enjoy life with me. And there's a man there who has a shriveled arm. And Jesus sees this man. He's filled with compassion, like we saw a couple of weeks ago. And he knows that the Sabbath is a time of rest and renewal. And so what what makes sense to do on the Sabbath? Does it make sense to go, oh, I can't work because I'm supposed to rest? Or does it make sense to heal and allow this man to experience rest and renewal on the Sabbath? And so the religious leaders, they, again, they see the law is a way of earning God's favor. And so they see that we're going to test Jesus. If Jesus doesn't follow these commands like we expect, then he's a bad person. And so Jesus, he heals this man in his great compassion. He gives him rest. He gives him redemption. He gives him healing. He fulfills the purpose of the Sabbath and the religious leaders, they lose their minds because the Sabbath, this was like like the central command that they made a big deal out of. And Jesus didn't follow it as they expect. Because again, religious people see commands as a way to earn God's favor. Jesus sees the commands of God as a way to enjoy relationship with God. And so when God is among them on the Sabbath and wants to heal, they think you're not allowed to do that. And Jesus is like, I never said you can't do that on the Sabbath. That's your man-made rule. And you've missed the whole purpose. Is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? And and the religious people, their conclusion is, well, we're going to sit back and be passive and call that obedience. Jesus steps up and heals this man and calls this the real purpose. And so so Jesus' critique is that they've missed the whole point. He says the Sabbath was made for man as a gift to enjoy relationship with God and renewal man wasn't made to serve the Sabbath. You've got it totally backwards. And I, the son of man, this divine figure from Daniel 7, I am here. And I'm telling you, as the king of creation, here's the true purpose of the Sabbath. You've completely missed the point. And the religious leaders, they lose their minds and they say, we got to kill this guy because he's making us look bad. We got to kill this guy because he's bringing something new. He's saying you can get to God without climbing up the mountain. He's saying you can get to God without putting him in your debt and they lose their minds. And it's so easy to look at these stories and go, those dummies. Like fasting was all about communion with God. Why didn't they just come into the party and hang out with Jesus? Like the Sabbath, it's all about this time of renewal. Why wouldn't they want Jesus to heal a guy on the Sabbath? It's so easy to look at these stories and go, why are they doing this? But I would submit to you that even as Christians, we are prone to doing this with God's commands. And you might not do it consciously, but here's what I think this looks like. And and just tell me if you can resonate with this. Um, We we look at the gospel and we go, okay, I'm saved by grace. Jesus dies for me, not because I was awesome, but because he's awesome. Um, But then I think what we do is we functionally say, Jesus gives me grace. He gives me what I don't deserve. And then he passes the baton off to me. And after erasing my past and giving me a fresh start, then I take the baton and I walk the Christian life in my own strength for my own performance. And again, we don't say it that blunt, but this is what's going on when you uh, find sin in your life and you get defensive and you don't want to confess it, or it's when you sin and you go, oh, I can't go to God in confession because he must be angry at me. This is what's going on underneath the surface. This is why we would have fear in our life. This is why we would have pride in our life. This is why we would have sweat or swagger in our life is because we are so prone to saying, okay, Jesus, you take care of my past and I'll take the baton and all follow the commands of God that I like, because let's be honest, we're not that consistent. We don't take the whole law of God. We just take the ones that we think we could do good at, and then we hold everyone else to those, and we ignore the rest. And so we run in our own strength, and on days we do good, we're proud, and on days we do poorly, we absolutely freak out. And this idea that Jesus saved me from my past, but I'm responsible to carry this thing forward— It is absolutely contrary to the good news of Jesus. And it robs God of glory and it robs you of joy. Listen to how uh, the great reformer Martin Luther put it. He says this, There is not one in a thousand who does not set his confidence upon his works, expecting by them to win God's favor and to anticipate his grace. And so they make a fair of them. A thing which God can't endure since he has promised his grace freely and wills that we begin by trusting that, that grace and in it perform all works, whatever they may be. What Luther is saying is every human has this propensity toward religion. What sin has done is it has so fractured our relationship with God that we are bent towards this pull of religion that says we can fix ourselves, we can earn our way back. So, even us as Christians who have received God's grace, we try to turn the Christian walk into something that is built on our performance. We turn Christianity into another path up the mountain. And if you, if you can resonate with that at all, if you, if you could say, oh man, I do feel that pull in my life, then I don't want you to miss these two many parables that Jesus dropped in the middle of all of those verses. He gives us two little mini parables, one about sowing, and I know nothing about sowing. But he says if you put a new cloth on an old garment and you wash it, it's going to rip apart. I know nothing about sewing, so I'm just going to trust Jesus on that. Some of you are nodding. I'll trust Jesus. Some of you, you, you know what's up. The second, I did a little bit of research on this thing about new wine. I don't know what that says about me that I researched the wine and not the sewing. But um, what what's going on here is... Um, In the first century, they would store fermenting wine in animal skins um, that they would sew uh, together, um, which you're like, oh, that sounds really gross. They might think it's weird that you put yours in bottles. I don't know. Um, They would put them in fermenting, uh, they would put fermenting wine in animal skins that were sewn together. And here's what I found out about wine. Wine, it's a fermenting thing. It's not a static entity, that there are sugars and yeast being transformed in the liquid there. And so what wine would do is, It would expand in the wine skins. And so if you put new wine that's currently fermenting into old wine skins that had already expanded, what would happen is you would pour it in, it would have burst out on the ground and then you lose all your wine. And here's why I love the Bible. Jesus doesn't want you to lose your wine. I'll just leave that with you there. And and so what Jesus is saying with these parables, both of them, this, you can't put something new into something old. It's going to rip apart. It's going to break apart. What he's saying is you can't fit me. You can't fit the good news that my kingdom has come to the undeserving. You cannot fit that into your old religious mindset. You cannot fit the gospel and the good news of God's grace into a religious paradigm and turn it into another path up the mountain. If you do this, you will ruin the whole thing. If you do this, you will end up frustrated with Jesus and you may not actually put him on the cross, but you may be here today trying to mix Jesus with religion. And maybe it's why you're frustrated with Jesus today. Maybe it's why you feel like he's such an awful taskbasker that Jesus tells me to do stuff I don't want to do. Jesus expects too much of me. If you feel that way, that is a sure sign that you are trying to put the new wine of God's grace into the old wine skin of religion. And what Jesus is saying with these parables is he hasn't come to patch up our religious efforts. He hasn't come to give us a little boost up the mountain. What Jesus is coming is I've come to offer something completely new. I have flattened the mountain. I have brought God's kingdom down. There is no more mountain. Come into the party. Come in and experience my grace. That's the offer and the invitation of this text to put down your wineskins of self-merit and to receive the new wine of God's grace. Um, Or if you don't like wine, put down your wine skins and receive the new grape juice of God's grace. Like, don't get lost on the metaphor here. The point is, Jesus is saying, you can't fit me into an existing paradigm. You've got to think a whole new way. You've got to let go of this religious mindset to pick up this new thing that I am doing. You get to enjoy a relationship with God by grace that will transform you like sugars and yeast working and becoming something new and expanding and moving the skin into something it wasn't before. This is Jesus's invitation to these religious leaders. And, and I believe it is his invitation to you and me who are prone to the pull of religion. Uh, Because, um, I think Martin Luther said it best. There's no one that doesn't struggle with this. And so my question to you this morning is, are you tired of that pull? Are, are you tired of feeling good when you did okay and feeling freaking out when you're not? Are you tired of feeling proud about against other people? Are you tired of feeling like God's love for you is constantly dictated by your performance? Because Jesus's invitation for you today is to put down the old wineskins and enjoy the new wine of his grace. And now these Pharisees, um, they couldn't receive that invitation. It just broke all of their categories. And so um, what happens is they end up succeeding on the plot that begins in this text today. They put Jesus on the cross. They succeed in killing Jesus, but on the cross, they play right into his hands. That on the cross, Jesus burst through the old wineskin of religion, And by dying in our place for our sins, he goes to the grave and takes our sin with him and punches a hole out the other side of death. He rips open the old wine skin of all of the old ways of relating to God. And he punches out the other side, a new way of grace. And he says, for all who believe in me, your sin is taken care of. You receive my righteousness and you get to be a part of my kingdom. Now I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to renew you. I'm going to be like new wine working in you now until I come back to make all things new. And so it's, it's through the rejection of the religious leaders that Jesus makes a way for us to God. And so I want to plead with you this morning. Don't be like the religious leaders who hang on to their old religion and don't receive Jesus put down the wine skins of self-performance and receive something far greater from God that will give you a a new type of confidence. It won't be swagger. It'll be gospel confidence that says, yeah, I am worse than I know. So when someone criticizes you, you don't have to fire back and go, that's not the half of it. You don't know how bad I am, but God loves me more than you can ever know. So I don't need to pretend to be more than I am right now. Is anyone tired of pretending? The invitation of Jesus is you don't have to pretend anymore. You just have to come in confession, repent of your sin, and believe the good news that he has brought God's kingdom to the undeserving and come into the party this morning. And I will tell you that the most powerful ministry happens when we can distinguish between Jesus and religion when we can distinguish between I obey God because I want to be with him, not because I'm trying to prove myself to him, that I am loved because of Jesus in spite of me, not because of my performance, is we can increasingly as a church distinguish between those types of things. We will find a new life with God and as a community. And that is my hope for our church, that we would be a church that powerfully distinguishes in our own life the difference between Jesus and religion and find a new joy in our own walk with the Lord and can with our friends, when they say all religions are ultimately the same, that we could have a word of good news, just like Jesus did that. No, they're all the same except for this one. And I've got some good news for you about it. And so, um, And if you're frustrated with Jesus this morning, if you're frustrated with others, if you're frustrated with yourself, that's the invitation. Come in confession, believe his grace, come into the party this morning and walk out of here more free in the gospel and to become something new that like Jesus can be a friend to sinners and throw the best party amongst the undeserving that would show our world a little taste of what our God is like. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I thank you that you are not like every other religious teacher out there, that you haven't heaped down a list of commandments from heaven and say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but that you have come to save us from that mentality, that you've come to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here um, and for those watching online and just anyone um, that is new with us and maybe doesn't have a background with you. I pray that you would open our eyes um, to the beauty of what you are offering here. I pray that you would um, help us to let go of the old wineskin of performance to take hold of your grace. Um, I pray that you would help us to enter into the party this morning, um, that we might leave this place more free in the gospel and more reflecting to this world um, the hope we have in you that goes so far beyond any religion. Would you move us from religion into a deeper relationship with you by grace this morning, I ask in your beautiful name. Amen.